YTTP Studios presents To The People Podcast. This podcast is powered by Youth To The People. We make pro-grade vegan, cruelty-free skincare for all genders, pronouns, skin tones, passions, and people. And right here, every week, you'll meet friends of the brand who prioritize wellness, however it looks in their lives, and use their practice to learn more about themselves and heal their communities. I'm Greg Gonzalez, co-founder of Youth to the People. And I'm your host, Alyssa Shapiro. So who's ready to go deep today? Maybe a little spiritual? For today's conversation, we're going to pull inspiration from the concept of deep ecology. This concept first came up in the 1970s when a Norwegian philosopher and mountaineer, Arne Nass, introduced it into literature. It's not separate from the ecology movement, but deep ecology brings an approach that involves reconfiguring our systems in order to preserve ecological and cultural diversity. According to Nass, supporters of deep ecology are, quote, united by a long-range vision of what is necessary to protect the integrity of the Earth's ecological communities and eccentric values. About this concept, the Austrian-American physicist Fritjof Capra wrote this, deep ecology does not separate humans or anything else from the natural environment. It does not see the world as a collection of isolated objects, but as a network of phenomena that are fundamentally interconnected and interdependent. Deep ecology recognizes the intrinsic value of all human beings and views humans as just one particular strand in the web of life. And I love this concept of deep ecology, of our oneness with the earth and with one another. And there's a spiritual element to that, right? Our connection, we have a physical and an energetic connection and our well-being and the earth's well-being are inextricably tied. And then there's also spiritual ecology, which is an exploration of the spiritual dimension of our present ecological crisis. It's the idea that the earth's crises reflect our inner. We can be in balance and in harmony or not. And that's when these major problems arise, when humans take and take, or when we hoard resources, or when systems are put into place that disproportionately and purposefully disadvantage certain groups of people, and they put the earth at a disadvantage too. And that's what we get to talk about today with our guest, Leah Penniman, who is the founder, along with her husband, Jonah, of Soul Fire Farm. Here's Leah. Soul Fire Farm is an Afro-Indigenous-centered community farm on 80 acres of Mohican territory, also known as Grafton, New York. And we have a really um, ambitious purpose, which is to uproot racism and seed sovereignty in the food system. And in summary, you know, there's three basic ways that we work on that. The first is we grow a whole lot of food and medicine uh, using regenerative practices and distribute that at no and low cost to people who need it in our community. Uh, The second major thing we do is to provide education, training, and resources to aspiring farmers, especially Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And the third um, and final sort of bucket of our work is advocacy and public education, because we believe fundamentally that policies and institutions need to change if the earth is going to be treated fairly and those who work the earth are to be treated fairly. Soul Fire Farm is committed to ending food apartheid, and they do that through food distribution, through reclaiming agency within what's a really unjust food system, and to healing their community through a deep connection with and reverence for the land. 
shout out to one of my mentors and our board president, Karen Washington of Rise and Root Farm, who corrected me when I was using the government term of food desert to refer to zip codes where there really isn't adequate fresh food, uh, where you know the supermarkets and farmers markets are sparse and income levels are low. So while the government does call this a food desert, the challenge is that implies it's a natural phenomena, like a desert is a natural ecosystem, when in fact we have a human created system of segregation that comes from a whole history of housing discrimination, redlining and other forms of racialized oppression. And that is an apartheid system. So the empowering thing about calling it food apartheid, calling it what it is, um, is that in acknowledging its human origins, we also acknowledge that human beings can fix it, you know, that there's nothing inevitable about it. And it, it's true, there's nothing inevitable about, you know, folks of color being more likely to experience hunger and also diet-related illnesses like kidney failure, heart disease, um, and cancer, all of which can be linked to not having access to our ancestral foods. So I asked Leah how food apartheid connects to the disenfranchisement of Black farmers in the U.S. And she told me that we can think about it like this. Food apartheid is the whole system of oppression that relates to food and land. So food apartheid and the disenfranchisement of Black farmers are interlocking issues. So as far as Black farmers in the United States, uh, you know, the history, it could take a whole dissertation. But in short, you know, despite the broken promise of 40 acres and a mule after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, Black farmers did manage to acquire through labor and purchase almost 16 million acres of land by the early 1900s. And this was the peak of Black land ownership and Black farming. And it's been on the decline ever since, not because Black farmers didn't want to continue in the profession. Quite the contrary, it was because white supremacist groups like the Klan, the White Citizens Council, and the White Caps uh, sought to punish Black farmers for the audacity of leaving the plantation and trying to start their own businesses. So they burned down homes, they murdered people. We know over 4,000 documented cases of these murders and really drove as a push factor the Great Migration to the North and West where 6 million Black people left the rural South. Um, another big factor in Black land loss was the federal government and is the federal government itself. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has systematically discriminated against Black farmers, and that's led to a lot of foreclosures um, and loss of, of business. And there are a number of other factors as well, but I think that we're at a really powerful point right now where the legacy organizations like the Federation of Southern Cooperatives and the Land Loss Prevention Project, they've been fighting for generations now uh, to save Black agrarianism and are being joined in by some of the younger organizations like Soul Fire Farm, um, uh, who are made up of mostly returning generation farmers whose grandparents were the ones in the South tending the soil. And I think together we've been able to really bring into the national conversation more about the plight of the Black farmer and the necessity of righting these historical wrongs. The Justice for Black Farmers Act, which was introduced by Senator Cory Booker, Senator Elizabeth Warren, later joined by Senator Kristen Gillibrand, is a really powerful piece of legislation that includes provisions like debt relief for Black farmers, um, a massive land reform initiative, uh, resources for training, including a form of a conservation corps for farmers. And there were hundreds of individuals and organizations who weighed in on the provisions. Uh, we are a member organization of the National Black Food and Justice Alliance. And as a member organization, we're able to give some input. And some of that input was specifically around the training opportunities for young farmers who want to get into the field. So we're super excited, you know, that that legislation has been introduced. 
And that part of it, the debt relief was actually tucked into the most recent uh, COVID relief and stimulus package. And so there is a, a really historical opportunity for this long sought after um, debt relief to finally be given to black farmers who've been discriminated against for so long. What these farmers, these human beings who are feeding our country have experienced is horrible. What they've been put through is horrible. But at Soulfire Farm, Leah and her team are doing things differently. At Soulfire Farm, you know, we're unique in that we're not running a big industrial farm with a huge labor force. Um, but I will say that as a farm, we did sign on to be food justice certified with the Agricultural Justice Project, which means that we agreed to very stringent labor standards. Uh, including everything that I've already mentioned, um, and additionally, worker protections from, you know, unfair dismissal, uh, ability to participate in a grievance process, to be part of collaborative decision making for the organization, and so on. So I will say, you know, even with a really small operation, there's just a couple of farmers here, most of our staff do non-farm things. Uh, we enjoy high job satisfaction, good health, a collaborative spirit on the land. Uh, we all have, maybe note, very notable is that we do all have a diversity of types of work that we do. So even, you know, Brooke and I, who are the main farmers, Brooke also does social media for the organization, some public speaking. Um, I'm here with you speaking and, and doing some storytelling. And I do think that the ability to have diversified tasks, so it's not just 60 hours a week, uh, bent over in the field, uh, but a chance to use our bodies and minds also contributes to a healthy work environment. Doesn't that balance sound nice and healthy? I mean, I can only imagine because I spend most of my day working at the computer. And for me to think about putting my hands in the earth and creating something from that, it sounds healing. I think it is really healing and wonderful to Get to put our hands in the earth and and to have that balance of being in physical space and in relationship with the soil the birds the plants unfortunately the voles and other pests um, as well as being able to do the intellectual work of advocating for a society that really is environmentally sustainable and just i love something that leah has said in the past as important as it is for us to grow and provide food we more importantly grow farmers and growers and at Soulfire Farm, they make this meaningful connection between racial justice and food sovereignty. When we talk about food sovereignty, it's really important to shout out and center Via Campesina, which is an international movement of millions of peasant farmers from all six arable continents. And what's so powerful about their work at the front lines of resisting agribusiness takeover of the food system is that they really define food sovereignty as not just access to healthy food but looking at the democratization and community control of every aspect of the food system from sunshine to plate. So it relates to land reform and redistribution, uh, the protection of seed sovereignty, the health of farmers, uh, the right to ancestral culturally appropriate whole foods, uh, fair prices for distributors, all of that is, is incorporated into food sovereignty. And the reason that it's so connected to racial justice is that both in this country and then also if you zoom out internationally, there's a lot of racial disparity in the food system. Uh, for example, in the US, if you look at land access alone, 95% of the farmland by acres and 98% by property value is white owned, which is higher than ever before in our history, right? If you look at 
labor. Um, we know that over 85% of the farm labor is done by people of color, yet only around two and a half percent of the farm owners and managers are people of color. If you look at access to food, you know, uh, black and brown folks are four times more likely to be hungry than white folks. And so in every, in every aspect of the food system, we have racial disparity. So it's impossible to have a vision of food sovereignty, which really is a, a fair food system without looking at addressing these racial disparities. I asked Leah where her journey with farming began for her personally, if she ever felt a connection to the land before starting Soul Fire Farm. And she told me that her connection to the land goes way back. Like most things worth doing, there's many origins. You know, I did grow up mostly rurally. My parents were living in two different places. And with my dad, I was in rural central Massachusetts and with my mom in urban Boston area. But uh, as one of the few brown kids in school, there was a lot of bullying and social exclusion. So my siblings and I spent most of our time in the forest and the forest was our most loyal friend. So when it was time to get a summer job as a teenager, I definitely wanted to do something in service of the earth. Uh, and was fortunate to be hired by the Food Project in Boston. I did urban and suburban farming there uh, when I was 16 and went on to work at a number of other farms across the Northeast in my young adult years. Soulfire Farm itself was started uh, by my spouse and I when our children were just two years old and newborn respectively. And we were living in the south end of Albany, which is a neighborhood under food apartheid. And we had a lot of trouble finding fresh food for our children. So when our neighbors found out that we knew how to farm and they were similarly hoping for fresh food for their own children, they started peer pressuring us to create a farm for the people. And that was where the idea was born. And a few years later, you know, we found ourselves on this, this sacred land um, doing the work that we do to this day. Soulfire Farm is located on a chilly mountainside in upstate New York. They have 80 acres, and they actively farm seven of the acres. The rest of that is habitat for wildlife like coyotes, bears, blue and green herons, hawks, and barn owls. And the cultivated part of the farm has hundreds of different varieties of crops, including heritage crops, black and indigenous crops. We have an apple orchard, a couple of goats, and a lot of chickens that are raised for eggs and right now they're rooting around eating grubs and helping with pest management in the aforementioned uh, small fruit and herb area so we appreciate the chickens for all that hard work we got some shiitake mushrooms some beehives and the home well the homes that are here actually were built lovingly by the loving hands of jonah my spouse who is a incredible natural builder so they're straw bale timber frame uh, passive solar adobe you know, a lot of reclaimed materials, very thoughtful, energy efficient design. And, you know, Jonah, together with helpers and friends, you know, over the years has built out a small campus that is not just home to our family and a couple of other employees of Soulfire Farm, but also hosts uh, in non-pandemic times between one and 2,000 people a year for various programs. So it is a lot of work, you know, to manage land and especially vacant land that we found like this, where we had to put in the septic, the electric, the water, the sewer, you know, all that, all that stuff we've got to put in and maintain. So it's, it's a lift, but it really is a blessing, um, especially in these times of pandemic when we're kind of realizing that a lot of these industrial structures that we've made are fragile. You know, it's a blessing to be here and, and know that we can build our own shelters and grow our own food and, you know, provide for the community in ways that are 
material, tangible, and relevant. You're listening to To The People Podcast. Stick around for a special discount code at the end of the episode. We'll be right back. Social justice is imperative when making a promise like skincare for all, which Youth To The People does. We are deeply rooted in the protection of people and planet. And with a pro-grade vegan line of products, we depend on the health and the abundance of the earth. As a manufacturer that is committed to using glass, Youth To The People recognizes the devastating impact of single-use plastics on our planet. But passion and good intention alone, they won't end systemic injustices. But activists, community organizers, nonprofits, scientists, and innovators will. Youth To The People believes in supporting them. Food, water, and shelter are human rights, yet many people don't have access to them. So when resources are tight, women and communities of color face disproportionate consequences, and the COVID-19 crisis is only widening inequality, and it's pushing millions more into starvation. So over the next three years, Youth to the People will donate $1 million to nonprofits that are addressing the systemic injustices that cause poverty and food and water insecurity. We started last December with a $75,000 donation across several nonprofits. One of those is Soul Fire Farm. We can improve the world. We can make it equitable and just. We won't settle for more just or more inclusive or more representative or closer to equal. We mean inclusive, just, equal, representative, full stop. Okay, let's talk about topsoil. It's so important in the fight against climate change because it actually sequesters carbon. And the more carbon we can bring into the ground from the atmosphere, the better. In 2009, Soulfire Farm soil was actually ranked on the worst level by the USDA Agricultural Soil Classification. They only had six inches of topsoil at that time. But by 2017, they increased their topsoil by 300% to 18 inches, and they did that through regenerative and ancestral farming practices. So now it sequesters up to 4,000 pounds of carbon. When we first you know, got out here in 2006, the topsoil was so badly eroded that you know, what was on top was pretty much subsoil. It was hard pan, gray, clay, not much organic matter at all. And this echoes in many ways what the, what the story of soil has been in the US, you know, when settler colonizers started farming the Great Plains for the first time in the 1800s. Within just one generation, they had driven 50% of the soil organic matter out of the soil and into the atmosphere in the form of carbon dioxide. And that was the beginning of anthropogenic climate change, you know, even before the Industrial Revolution. So uh, my colleague, Larissa Jacobson, talks about how our work as regenerative farmers is to call the carbon back into the soil where it belongs. And that really is, is that's it, you know. I mean, we we place our faith in the inch of humus that takes a thousand years to accumulate, as Wendell Berry writes, and and we use a number of techniques, including low and no-till, heavy mulches, cover crops, uh, rotational grazing, in order to build that soil back. And have been really fortunate to see that, you know, organic organic matter went from just a few percentage points up to over ten percentage points, uh, which is indigenous, you know, pre-colonial soil carbon levels in the time that we've been here. And, and we're hopeful that regenerative farming, if widely practiced, could capture at least a quarter of what we need to um, 
of the carbon we need to draw down from the atmosphere. Sulfire Farm is healing the land through Black and Indigenous farming traditions, and they're witnessing a mutual healing. As they heal the planet, the people are healing too. And Leah knows that the healing of the people and the planet are so intertwined. And she sees these tangible experiences take place when people come to visit her farm. You know, I often tell the story of this wonderful young person, Dijor Carter, who's now a young man, uh, who came to the farm as a 13-year-old and was not wanting to get out of the van at all, was really afraid a bear would eat him or some, some bugs would bite him. And only when everyone went on the tour did he get out of the van. He didn't want to be left behind and left alone. So when we started walking and he realized how muddy it was, it was springtime, um, he took off his sneakers to protect them from getting soiled. So we're walking, walking, and all these young people are just squealing because there's snakes, and toads, and bumblebees, and all kinds of um, creatures kind of flitting and slithering by. So they're not listening very much to the tour, which is fine. And, and we get back to debrief, and Dijor says, you know, Miss Leah, it's going to sound really weird, but when my bare foot touched the ground, this memory of my grandma came up through my feet and to my heart. And I remember when I was little and before she died, she would put her worms and things from the garden in my hands and tell me that it was okay, that they were friends. And I was thinking, you know, I didn't have anything to do with this place, but now remembering that I really have everything to do with this place. And, you know, Dijor's story is common in that a lot of folks, when they do come back to the land, feel an experience of belonging, of expanded possibility, of connection to uh, something wider, deeper, more profound than the material. And anecdotally, you know, a lot of people say, I came for soil science and I went away being able to leave an abusive relationship or a dead end job or, um, you know, a, a toxic situation where I was underestimating my own value. So I think that when we, I think the earth has been missing our footsteps, you know, and when we recommit to that relationship, the intimacy of that relationship with the earth, she's just been waiting to compost our trauma for us and waiting to give it back to us as hope. And without a lot of push on our part, you know, we see that happen time and again. And it's, it's one of the more rewarding aspects of being a farmer here. Okay, let me nerd out for a second here because I love that story. I think it is so beautiful because by protecting his shoes, he actually got to ground with the earth, get reacquainted and reconnected. And I think about that all the time. Like it feels so natural to want to be in nature, to touch the ground when there's a lot going on. And the earth really does receive so much from us energetically and physically. And it's so beautiful to see that in action in such a pure form for a kid to be able to express his memories of his grandmother like that. I mean, I love that. So I wanted to ask Leah about some of the history and practices of black and indigenous traditions that have guided how they practice regenerative farming. Because, you know, there's kind of a perception of regenerative farming as being white, but there's so much that goes back to black and indigenous folks. Absolutely. So, you know, there are, as you mentioned, so many regenerative practices that people think of as uh, European in origin or just ahistorical and, and don't think about it at, at all. But uh, in writing Farming While Black and in creating the curriculum for Soul Fire Farms immersion programs, I started with a hypothesis that, you know, Black and brown folks probably had something to do with organic and regenerative ag. And so let's just dig a tiny bit. And I only had to scratch the surface to uncover for myself 
so much. You know, for example, some of the earliest documented composting comes out of uh, ancient Egypt with Cleopatra, 59 BCE, putting out a decree that protected earthworms and assigning a whole cadre of priests to the protection and study of the earthworm to sheet vermicompost all the agricultural lands under her uh, dominion. And soil cores and studies have kind of borne out the effectiveness of this strategy. Also, the women of Ghana and Liberia creating African dark earth, which is a super rich regenerative, a super rich, um, you know, carbon heavy pyrogenic compost uh, that is so ubiquitous that you can actually measure the age of the community based on the depth of the compost. Uh, things like raised beds of the Ovambo people, the cover cropping of Dr. George Washington Carver, the uh, local farm to table marketing strategies of Booker T. Watley at Tuskegee University, the polycultures of Nigeria. I mean, it goes on and on. Almost any regenerative practice that you can think of, um, there is a Black um, and or Indigenous person behind that. And I think it's very, very important that we give credit where it's due, that we support the next generation of Black and Brown farmers and understanding that in doing farming, they're not adopting somebody else's best practices, but they're building on and reviving their own ancestral tra uh, traditions. And that we also think about, you know, this really tragic legacy of, of theft of land and labor that's happened um, among European descendant communities. And how do we not continue that in the terms of intellectual theft? How do we make sure that we're giving credit and compensation and asking for consent as we uh, implement these regenerative practices in the decades to come? Okay, here I go nerding out again, but I am stuck on this reference for earthworms. They are these little things, these little beings that kids play with, that we dig up after it rains, that we see on the sidewalk after it rains. And maybe it's because of how close they are to the ground that they come out of the dirt that we sometimes think of them as lowly. But they are essential to our lives. And they're such an important piece of the puzzle. We would not be able to grow food without earthworms. Okay, moving away from earthworms, I wonder what Leah has noticed in herself. Any spiritual shifts since working in a regenerative way with the land, her community, and food? Oh my goodness. I mean, I feel like I'm always growing and changing and responding so much um, in terms of the way that the earth and this community influences me. I'm probably pretty unrecognizable from <laughs> the person I was even 10 years ago. But I think something that's been resonating with me a lot recently is this idea of ecological humility and sacred biomimicry. So the concept that we as human beings are not in any way the masters of creation, but we're actually the younger siblings of the rocks, the rivers, the mountains, the owls, the trees. And so our job is to listen and to hear and to heed. And you know what that means in a practical sense is even something as mundane as, you know, I was out pruning raspberries the other day and raspberries do a lot better when they're pruned because they get more airflow and light, which reduces disease. But you know, all the while as I'm pruning, I'm getting like scratched up and bitten by these raspberries. Sometimes they're poking me in the face. And I was like, what are these raspberries trying to tell me? And so tuning in and listening, and being like, oh, okay, I hear you. The thing that is necessary might also be painful, um, but that doesn't mean it's not necessary. And I find myself listening to the, the metaphors of the earth often in terms of guidance for how to be the best person I can be. Uh, yeah, so. That's, that's what's on my mind right now. 
So Leah brought something up that I've been thinking about a lot lately, which, you know, if you've listened to this podcast since the beginning, what we can learn from mushrooms because they take what needs to be decayed and they use that decay to provide life. And it's a reminder that what seems like death doesn't have to all be bad. It's about being able to sit with the uncomfortable things. And like Leah said, sometimes what's painful is necessary, but being able to sit with that pain is essential to our continued growth and to moving in a healthy, full, and whole direction. So part of what Soul Fire Farm does is bring diverse communities together to engage in sustainable agriculture, environmental justice, and spiritual activism. So I asked Leah to explain spiritual activism. I mean, on the one sense, you know, borrowing from a Jewish perspective of tikkun olam or heal and repair of the world, there's a cosmology that human beings job is to partner with the creator to finish up the completion of the world that the world is not done that there's still injustice and unfairness and exploitation and that human beings are actually put here to do the work of spiritual activism so that's one framework um and and i certainly resonate with that i think another additional and overlapping framework is the idea that to do activism well um, it can sometimes be beneficial to draw on a spiritual framework. So uh, we, we touched on that a little bit in the question you just asked about what did we learn or how am I changed by nature? So a spiritual practice of listening to nature. Um, other spiritual practices might include things like asking permission of the land before we do things to her, um, holding rituals of healing, uh, rituals and celebrations that mark the seasons of the year um, in response to what the, uh, what the earth is doing, uh, engaging in practices like divination to determine the best way forward out of several options. And so I think it, spiritual activism both has to do with the overall sense of duty, but also the manner in which change is implemented. Yeah, you have to get close to the earth to be able to hear what you need in order to do what's best for you and for the earth. So for those looking to get involved with Soul Fire Farm, here's how. So we would love to have folks get involved with Soul Fire Farm. You can visit our website, soulfirefarm.org and find out about all of our programs. And we have a bunch of online things like virtual tours and uh, how to build a cold frame classes and beekeeping classes. So definitely check that out. There's also volunteer opportunities. There's a lot of guides there for ways to take action in your community to make the food system more just, you know, legislation to push forward and other actions. So uh, check out soulfirefarm.org. And you can also follow us on social media. We're on pretty much all the platforms. It's Soul Fire Farm, all one word. To the People podcast is a production of YTTP Studios. You can find us online at youthtothepeople.com and get 15% off your next purchase when you use the code TOTHEPEOPLE15 at checkout. This episode was produced by Menazel and myself. It was edited by Mena and our theme music is by YTTP co-founder Greg Gonzalez and Hannah Fernando. I'm Melissa Shapiro. This is To The People podcast and we'll talk soon.